Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where I talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the transportation reporter and the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And on the show today, I have a fascinating and fun interview with two guys from the UK. Yes, we are going international today on the show. And we're going to London, and we're going to talk about some revolutionary software that can make incident reporting, especially from official sources on the scene of a road closure, delivered to you while you're driving in real time. It really is a, a change in how you can get information in real time to, to the people that need it while, while they're out driving around. As we all know, even a few seconds while driving, getting that right information can make a huge difference whether we get stuck in a traffic jam or behind a road closure or can be routed around it and then keep moving. It, it really is it, that simple. Do a, a few seconds can, can really make that change. Well, today I'll be speaking with James Harris and Simon Topp they're both in the UK, and they're both a part of the small UK tech company called Elgin. They are working on a platform called the One Dot Network Traffic Operation Software. And it's an intuitive cloud-based platform that allows for easy coordination and communication from official sources to you, the driver, about planned road closures, about road work, other events on the road network that will affect how you get from one place to another place. So far, it's been helping out drivers in the UK, and they are seeing tremendous success so far, and they're working now on bringing that technology here to a U.S. city near you. So it's worked in the UK, they want to bring it to the U.S., and that conversation with those guys will be coming up in just a minute. It really is an interesting new platform that can really aid a lot of us as we're driving, especially uh, as we transition to more uh, self-driving, automation, uh, autonomous cars, that sort of thing in, in the future. So this could be the backbone of that kind of, uh, of, that kind of a network, which is, is pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, that's coming up in just a minute. But first, I have some, some news for you. Not breaking news, but uh, I guess kind of. After, after about seven months broadcasting from my basement, I am officially back in the Denver 7 studios. Yes! I was asked to come back and broadcast from the mothership and move out of my basement broadcast center. Now, I still use the basement broadcast center, like for this show right now, uh, and I still have it set up basically the same way as I had it set up when uh, I uh, left here a few days ago. I still have my one light, and I still have my monitor. Uh, I had to take my uh, a couple of the laptops to and from work so I can I use them there and I use them here. But but basically the the studio, my basement studio, is set up the same way that it ever was. But I'm back in the mothership, and I can't lie, it was a little strange on my first day back. It felt good uh, on one aspect, and, and it felt new on another one. It was actually a little bit nervous. Uh, for me to be up on the green wall again because I haven't been uh, on there for the last seven months. I, I didn't know uh, if I remembered how to point the right way, but I but I guess I figured it out, and then I became more comfortable after uh, a couple of uh, 
a couple of updates, and uh, so then off I, I was off and running. <laughs> it, it, so it felt a, a new and and a little bit comfortable and, and a little bit odd all at the same time. There were a few things that that had broken down I- I- at my desk there, like the overhead light that I, I used so I could see. Uh, that that wasn't working, and that took a day or so for them to fix. Uh, one of the monitors wasn't working right. They they took care of that. Overall, it was basically like it was. Back in late March, when I left it, there was a tremendous amount of filth, though, on just about everything. There's some kind of this this layer of of dirt and film filth that was. Uh, it took me a while to wipe everything down. Had some wet towels and just had to. I just had to do a good old fashioned clean down of the entire desk. Oh, and I had to find a new chair. Because uh, my, uh, my the chair that I, I had been using was commandeered by the anchor left position. I don't know why they took my chair uh, because it was probably the the better of the. It's a high chair. It's one of these high chairs on wheels, and it uh, was really nice. And I guess the other ones, the the one that they left me that was sitting there, the left side of the seat had caved in, so you would sit in it and you'd basically fall out to the left. So I found another one that was in, in a little bit better shape that was back in the garage, and so now I'm using that. I, I can't, I, I guess I don't feel right just taking my chair back from the anchor chair, because they because now that is their new normal. That's their new chair that they've had for the last seven months. And And even though it was my chair for a lot of years, it is now their chair, and so fine that they can... They can have it. Whatever. It's it's okay. <laughs> they, um, but it was just all that filth that was on just about everything. Uh, and the desk was was used as a temporary dumping ground for stuff, so that that I had to clear that away, and and then wipe it all down before I could really start using it again, for its intended purpose, the traffic command and control center. When you're not there to monitor what gets left, everything's going to get left there on on the desk. I really became accustomed, though, to working from home. And I actually liked it very much. It It was my new normal. I got to sleep in an extra hour, so I would actually get up at 3.15 instead of 2.15. <laughs> that actually sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I got to sleep in an hour extra, and I only got up at 3.15. <laughs> That's still a nightmare for a lot of people when I tell them how early I get up in the morning. Uh, so that was nice. The best gift of all, though, was seeing my kids in the morning because it was the first time in my working career that I've had children that I could actually have breakfast with them. I, I've always been out of the house by three o'clock or so and never got to wake them up or be with them as they got ready for school unless I had a scheduled day off. That part was wonderful. I could come down here to the basement start my work, get a little break, run upstairs and go wake them up or have, uh, or ha- be with them while they're having breakfast. That was a, that was a huge, uh, huge bonus for me. That was wonderful. It was actually also nice not having to pack a lunch, having all my food right here. That was a definite bonus. I, I could fix whatever I wanted. I didn't have to plan any food choices out. I could either have a sandwich or I could have cereal or I could have some odd leftover that was just sitting in there in their fridge. It didn't matter. I didn't, didn't have to worry about planning a what am I going to have for a lunch or a snack uh, while I'm while I'm working away from home. Really, I, I, any food choice was available here. It was great. I mean, that's one advantage of being in the studio is no delay. I did have to deal with a delay while I was here at home, and and every because everything is in real time there. Obviously, 
no no remote lag either from the computers or from the actual broadcast. I, I became comfortable with my commute as well here at home. I only had to go down the stairs and not drive 25 minutes to the downtown studio. And then on Monday, it was compounded because there was a snow storm where I was getting a half a foot of snow in my house. So it was more like 45 minutes from home to work. Uh, Too bad they didn't have me come in after the snowstorm, (laughs) not during a snowstorm. But look, I was fine. I made it downtown just fine. I still have a a foot of snow around the house uh, and in the yard. But uh, it'll most of it. I, I would hope. Some of it, well, maybe most of it would be gone by Halloween. We'll see how, how it, uh, how it warms up around here. But anyway, I'm back in the studio, back in the saddle again, if you will. So that's the uh, big change in my life so far. And when I was out driving around, I, I was able to, the one thing I like to do actually is drive around. I actually like to drive around to see the different projects and different road works that are, that are actually happening out there. And, you know, there's a lot of information out there from government agencies, uh, and it, the, the information can come from drivers, from traffic reporting services to help drivers avoid trouble spots while they're out driving around. But what is the best way to get that information to the driver while they're on the road? Frustrated by the lack of reliable information about road closures on traditional GPS systems, James Harris came up with a solution that is now used widely by highway authorities in the U.K., The One Dot Network platform has evolved into an advanced traffic management and smart mobility solution, which is transforming the way authorities manage their highway networks and communicate with drivers in real time. And this platform is about to be introduced here into the United States. Joining me now to talk about how this can help you as you drive is James Harris, the founder and CEO of the One Dot Network, and joining him is Simon Top, the Chief Commercial Officer at One Dot Network. Simon and James, thanks for being here on the world famous and international Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks very much, Jason. Yeah, great, great to, to be, be here, here, Jason. All right, so Simon, uh, before we talk to James, Simon, I understand that you used to live here in Denver. Yep, indeed. So, uh, yeah, back in 2014, I did a bit of a stint uh, living on the outskirts of Denver. So, f- firmly know the joys of uh, what traffic congestion is like heading on the I-25 into the city or uh, out on the uh, 470 uh, getting out to the mountains and the Rockies. And, uh, yeah, fully understand some of the challenges that are uh, at play over there. Yeah, so we've been dealing with a lot of snow, snowy commute the last couple of a couple of days. And, James, have, have you been here to Colorado or at least been to the States? I have. I spent my gap year before university cycling uh, from Alaska to California. And, oh, wow. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't visit Colorado, but I did visit a number of the mountain states. So, oh, that's yeah. very nice. Love the country. So, James, before you started this traffic data information gathering, there had to be some kind of a spark. There had to be some kind of a, a, a moment where you're driving and, and that made you think there has to be a better way of getting information two drivers about road closures, road restrictions, and, and, and find a better way around. What was that spark? You know, it, it's a cliche, but there really was. Uh, so I was dro- driving and hit a road closure, and we have uh, yellow detour signs in the UK uh, marking out where the authorized detour was due to take me. And 
I got completely lost and I thought this is crazy. You know, in an age where so much information is digital and there's an expectation that you can get reliable information in real time, there was no such thing. So Google was operating blind. I was using Google as my sat-nav at the time. There was no connection between what was going on in the road and what my sat-nav GPS device was telling me. So before Google bought Waze, Waze was an independent company based there. It started in Israel. And I I used to use Waze when it first came out. Did you ever try that as an alternate to the Google Maps? Oh, I love Waze. Waze is an awesome company. And what Waze have done, they deserve every bit of success. But what they do is they crowdsource information from drivers. So often there's a lag between uh, the disruption that's plotted on the Waze map being picked up by Waze's. But but the bigger problem, actually, is the potential for road closures when they get reopened. No one on Waze finds out because it's still showing us closed on Waze. So that's one of the little detailed problems with crowdsourcing information. What we did in the UK was work with the road authorities themselves, the jurisdictions that actually manage the roadways, to put them in control of the information so they can provide authoritative, updated information. First time a cone's put out into the road, that then gets syndicated out to all of the major GPS providers, not just to Waze, not just to Google, but to, to the others as well. As I was reading about the software, it seems like it's really designed to centralize these road interruptions and the data directly from the official sources. So how do you get those people, those official sources, to then input that data? So, yeah, what we did in the UK, UK is actually remarkably similar to the US in terms of the way roads are managed. It's a very decentralized, uh, distributed approach with lots and lots of players, a really complex value chain of city regions, counties. Um, We have broadly the equivalent of the... uh, state DOTs in the UK, lots of different players with different responsibility for different stretches of roads, and then a whole bunch of other players like the utility companies who come along and dig holes in roads, the contractors who have contracts to maintain roads and and resurface them. And we provided a platform where they could all share data transparently, and that was the real game changer. So we created this one network platform where every official piece of information, initially, however, inaccurate it was in terms of that planning view of the world. Everything that's known in advance was shared on the platform. And just through sharing the data and making it transparent, we saw that the information that was being provided got a little bit more accurate because it was out there in in the public domain being used by people. So that was the real game changer. We then provided a digital platform that enabled um, those organizations that are planning disruptions on the road network to plot out in detail on a map which roads they're going to close, which lanes they're going to close, where the official detour goes. And all of that was then shared digitally. And then we provided an app that enabled them to update that information in real time. That's pretty fascinating because I've had the hardest time in the world and I've brought up basically your same premise to our DOT here in Colorado that when there's a road project, a road construction, whatever it is, there's always a foreman that is in charge of the road crews. 
And that foreman is usually just sitting in the truck, making sure everybody's doing basically what they're supposed to be doing. But they could easily take their phone and make a call to their operations center that is out in, on the west side of Metro Denver and say, hey, we've just closed down this lane or we are now all clear and everything is open. That doesn't happen. We, I, I can't, for the, for the life of me, I cannot get these people to, to get the information from one side to the other. It's just, it's, it's stunning. It's, how were how you able to do that? Yeah, so technology is only part of the answer. It, technology has to be accompanied by cultural change. And the trick to what we've done in the UK is to provide value back to the, operation, the traffic operations teams they're using all the all of the other data in the platform in order to be able to plan better, to be able to monitor conditions on the highway network in conjunction with activities that are going on on the ground. So there's huge value coming back to them. That then creates a virtuous circle of um, the operators on the ground actually being incentivized to provide better quality information. I mean, we're also working with um, uh, IoT providers providers of smart cones and traffic management equipment that's placed in the highway that actually has the location of that equipment enabled enshrined within it and able to send an intelligent message so actually it's not just solely dependent now on the guy in the hard hat and the high-vis jacket um, actually updating the status of a of a closure of a lane closure on an app there are also more automated means by which we can get that information into the platform. As May, well. I guess I guess the folks there in the UK are more invested in this, at, at least from the official point of view, because there's some folks that, that are working here and at other departments of transportation that do this information. I, I know from other states working with other states. It, um, it maybe maybe they just don't don't really care that much, and because they they have their job, they're already working. They you know they don't really care if you're in a traffic jam or not. They do send out some information, but the, I, I guess they just don't have that passion for it, and that that's what I guess frustrates me um, I, when I'm yeah, you know, doing I, this. I think it's a yeah, it's a big big problem um, to solve, and uh, yeah, often apathy is the enemy of <laughs> right. making good things happen. But but the ultimate customer here is the public. You know, we're the people making use of the roads, and really is the customer of the the road agency. And you know, certainly in the UK, the public's expectations have moved forwards a lot over the last ten or twenty years. Um, you know, the the expectations of how we expect to get around, um, how reliable our journeys are. Yeah, we, we have very high expectations and we like to complain. So if we hit a, a roadblock, a, a big set of congestion that we don't know about, we complain a lot to the council, whether that's directly to the highways team or whether that is to the to the MPs or the councillors. And that that helps drive change because eventually that message does flow down what the public expectation is and helps you know move, move things forwards and drive that change and perhaps that that same perspective hasn't quite hit in the uh in the states just yet but but i think as a as a set of public yeah technology shapes our expectations and the, the speed of technology and how that has moved on means that yeah public's expectations is always you know, way ahead and uh, you know, road agencies have to adapt and change to that to be able to deliver. And that's kind of what we're hoping if we can provide a platform and tools for people that make them, uh, you know, get, give them the backbone to make some of those changes and improvements you know, is kind of where we fit and hopefully uh, help move things on. 
That's the voice of Simon Top, the chief commercial officer at One.Network. I'm also speaking with James Harris, the CEO of One.Network, about their traffic operation software. Does this software not just, we just talked about how officials at, let's say, at a road closure uh, can use this software to send a signal saying, hey, we have a road lane closure, road closure, whatever the case may be. Does this software also collect data about other incidents, crashes, stalls, other things that are not planned? Yeah, so we integrate with um, GPS data um, coming from um, GPS providers to provide a correlation, if you like, between disruption that's on the network that is unusual, that is not typical, that doesn't fit the normal um, rush hour patterns. And of course, in a post-COVID world, they've all changed anyway. Uh, but, But what we're really interested in is unusual patterns of disruption that the um, that that you would not normally expect, and about half of that is attributable to activities that are planned in advance, like roadworks and, in a pre-COVID world, public events, especially cycle events, um, running races, those sorts of things in in an urban context. But also, almost any event on the highway will cause some kind of impact to traffic, and then about half of uh, unusual disruption is caused by incidents and accidents, weather events, etc. So we have a, a holistic fix, not only of real-time disruption on the on the road network, but also uniquely a view as to which activities have been planned and authorized in advance, which gives the road authorities enormous power, really, in terms of having a better understanding of how they can improve their management of the road network in future. Right, but most of the commuters are in the morning or afternoon really in in the time where the where it's it's the most used is when people need the most amount of information and typically you're not going to have a lot of official sources uh whether it's a utility company or the dot closing down a lane during rush hour typically that doesn't happen now it did happen during the covid when there are very few people around but typically that doesn't happen so uh, how do you account for some of that crowdsourcing information coming in? Because you know, as you mentioned earlier, the crowdsourcing isn't perfect. And all those folks on ways who typically are the ones that are using it for the crowdsourcing for reporting information don't always tell you exactly when an incident is cleared. They're, they're pretty good about telling you when an incident has happened, but th- that information and that lag is still in there. Sure, absolutely. E- even providing the most holistic fix we can of the road network. It's still not 100% pre- precise, but, but, but remarkably, I mean, you, you'd be amazed at how disaggregated information is in the United States. And it, it really mirrors the picture that we, we had um, back in 2011 when I started this business in the UK. Every, almost every city authority is managing disruption information within a silo. And that information, there, there are instances where that is uh, adequately and effectively shared across boundaries. But we we haven't seen a single example of where two adjacent states are really sharing information, um, even, even at the interstate level, let alone at the arterial or local road level. So we're talking about a huge amount of information that is known about in advance. Uh, forget the real time stuff for, for, for a moment, but just the planned disruption that is planned planned on the road network, that is managed very locally and is not adequately shared. Once you start putting that information together, 
um, and you start putting it together with real-time information, you get a much more complete picture as to what's going on in the road network. And that not only benefits commuters and the regular uh, public users of, uh, of the network, but also there's a real dividend for um, stakeholders that have a, an operational or business reliance on, on roads like freight, like trucks, like blue light services, um, you know, like bus companies, et cetera. I would imagine one of the goals and the success being measured would be to see people get this information and then either be routed by their uh, the software that they're using, Waze, Google, Apple, whatever, or or, the, or th- that it routes them or they route themselves around the issue. Or How successful has your efforts been in influencing driver behavior to avoid these problem spots and keep traffic flowing better? Yeah, I mean, by simply providing um, better information just on road closures themselves. Road closures are absolutely binary because they change the available roads that journeys can take. So providing that information, particularly for major disruptive road closures, providing a a 100% reliable authoritative fix on when a road closure is live, and crucially, when the road gets reopened again, Providing that information in real time and being able to rely on it means that anyone planning a journey can be routed much more efficiently around that issue on the road network. Um, And what we saw before we implemented our solution in the UK was that quite often road closures were picked up by GPS services reasonably accurately. They would see a fall away in traffic on their, their, their GPS data. They might get some crowdsourced information from Waze. There wouldn't be a huge lag before the road got closed within their navigation algorithm. But what we what we would often see is the road would remain closed within their their solution long after it had actually been reopened because there's no traffic running through the road closure to correct that. And actually by providing an ecosystem where those authorities that are in charge of actually implementing that road closure, putting out the traffic management, putting out the barriers, they can actually provide that that real-time fix. That's an absolute game changer. Um, measuring the impact on um, journeys overall is is a challenge, actually, because it involves surveying large numbers of people. But it kind of stands to reason that if you can provide that information at the point of use through GPS services and and indeed through other other means, social media, etc., there's a definitive improvement in in people's user experience of the road network. I was just going to jump in on the back of James's yeah. comment there, just to say, yeah, we, we we did do some studies with one of our UK customers where they they manage around three thousand miles of road, uh, and over a, a short period of time, over a couple of months, measured, um, yeah, the the actual time road closures took place on GPS versus what was going on in the real world using our platform, and averaged about a seventy hour saving for the the travelling public, not being stuck in uh, that congestion, uh, being routed around. I think the other important aspect of being able to um, navigate people on the the you know, re- real time situations of road closures is a safety aspect. You know, we we know it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world being placed out on the road you know, as a, as part of a maintenance crew, and purely by being able to navigate drivers away where they're not actually going right up to that work zone, but being navigated around and never coming into conflict. One, you see huge improvement in safety. You have far less incursions of cars and vehicles into that uh, work zone, you know, massively reducing the risk of any incident there, but also just reducing conflict, you know, certainly on local 
roads where you have uh, members of the public that are frustrated with road closures. Again, we see lots of our customers in the UK you know, reporting you know, huge reductions in terms of conflict between their work zone staff on site and members of the public just by purely taking the traffic away from the uh, work zone that's live. That's Simon Top. Simon is the chief commercial officer at One.Network, and I'm also speaking to James Harris. He's the CEO of One.Network about their traffic operations software. So if I'm using Waze, and there's two parts to this question, if I'm using Waze and, and I already have my destination put into Waze and, I, and I'm driving along or to Google Maps or whatever, it has the, uh, the directions of where I'm supposed to go. Does your software then send info to the driver and then make my software that I'm using automatically reroute me around the traffic jam? Or does it just send the information and then when I get to that point, Waze has to compute it and figure it out and then get me around it? And, and is it possible secondarily to send a certain number of users maybe one way around a traffic jam and another set of users another way around the traffic jam not to overload those alternate routes but really to distribute the flow to different alternate routes so not everywhere gets backed up so in answer to the first part of the question we send um, much more accurate and definitive data into google ways TomTom, here, those sorts of GPS providers. And they then assimilate that information into their journey planning algorithm. So you as a driver won't notice that you've been routed around a, uh, a road closure. Even if I've started my road closure or if I've started my route and then five minutes into it, then there's a road closure about 10 minutes up ahead, it will just all of a sudden reroute me. It will reroute. Okay. It will reroute. If it's been implemented correctly within within their uh, navigation algorithm, it will reroute all, all automatically. And we have varying levels of adoption by different GPS providers, but Google will, in the UK, um, in near real time, reroute its uh, its users. Um, I mean, that real time is if if I'm t- five minutes from that road closure and it ha- it's inputted now and then it's sent to my phone right now, then I can get around it right now. It's a total game changer. And it means that the road authority, which is a very embattled organization, which is kind of doing an impossible job, right? There's always going to be disruption on the road network. You're always... You almost if you do your job perfectly, no one notices. It's that kind of a job, really, running running a, a road network. But this, for the first time, really gives them control of information. Um, Waze is a great initiative, and they, as I say, they deserve every bit of success. But well, they're really relying on the public to provide information. And this additional information source, which is coming from the guys who are actually closing the road, is highly complementary to that. You put all of this information together and fuse it together, and you get a far more accurate picture. Um, in answer to your second question, though, it's really interesting. I mean, that, th- this is where we want to get to ultimately, where we have effectively active traffic management capabilities, where um, the road authority could actually set business rules that would determine how much traffic is routed one way and how much traffic is routed another. We're some way off that at the moment. And, and for the time being, GPS services really are trying to provide the quickest and most efficient journey experience for their user, not necessarily the most sort of 
socially equitable way of, of, of routing traffic. Um, but certainly conversations that we've had with some of the GPS providers, the Dutch company TomTom, who underpin a lot of what Apple provides in the US, have got some really advanced uh, capability that they're working on to be able to do those sorts of things in the future. And it's uh, the provision of this sort of data that we're working with the road authorities to be able to provide is absolutely essential to, to that. Not that 4G isn't fast. It, it's pretty fast. But 5G really is a game changer here. And when you're talking about real-time road conditions, and eventually there will be self-driving cars, I think it's going to be much farther into the future than a lot of people think. I think it's going to be a long way away because you still have to outfit the cars with that technology. Then is it going to be already included or do you have to have a subscription plan? I mean, there's all these different issues that I've talked about <laughs> on the show in the past. But I would think that 5G and your software would be a game changer once we get the infrastructure where you have 5G along the highways, where you have cars that are connected to 5Gs, even if even if uh, people are still driving them at that point. But I think that could be the game changer with this kind of software where you're not in not only interacting with the officials, but you're also interacting with the cars themselves who are telling other cars about the real life conditions where where you're driving. It, it almost becomes more important that the absolute um, source of information is authoritative. It's not crowdsourced because once we take drivers out of the equation and the robots are driving, <laughs> the precision of information is even more right. vital. And the safety, the safety aspects of this are massive. Um, yeah, the, the thought of a driverless vehicle not knowing the whereabouts of a work zone. So this goes way beyond just road closures. Almost every disruption to the road network, which alters the the available roadway, needs to be known about and known about in advance. And you can only get information in advance of it actually happening on the ground from those that are planning it. So there's a, a really um, important linkage with the planning process and digitizing all of that information around traffic management, the extent of the work zone, and having that digital footprint available for uh, autonomous vehicles in the future. But, but you're absolutely right, Jason. You know, long before autonomy hits our roads, we have connected vehicles and the ability to communicate in, in real time with connected vehicles only only um, expands the need for, for, for this kind of high quality authoritative digital information. But there will always be a segment of drivers who will be driving their car. Maybe in a hundred years, everybody will be having self-driving cars. But up to that point, we're still going to have a, a, a segment of the population that's going to be driving themselves. They're not going to afford a car that is connected or have the uh, available funds to have the subscription to connect to the car. So how, how does this software, or do you think, as we look at the future, this is going to, your software, all the software, all the cars trying to connect between self-driving cars, people driving cars, smart yep. cars, smart, but and then there's dumb cars out there as well. <laughs> well, there's a... It's kind of where having some some level of uniformity comes in, you know. So there there is a, a federal highways backed program at the moment called WZDI, the Work Zone Data Exchange Initiative, which is you know focused on trying to get some level of uniformity of data, all with a view to connected vehicles in some shape or form, to ensure that there there is a standardised format for all of the the work zone data, um, traffic management 
uh, data to be digitized, but then transformed into a common format so that then that can be pushed out to wherever that might be. It might be a completely autonomous vehicle. It might be just somebody driving their own vehicle with a GPS attached to it. But the key there is having a level of standardization. It's something we're very lucky in the UK that we've had relatively firm and set standards around how some of this data is um, you know, pushed around between different systems. And it's something that we see is very important in the United States, having this kind of initiative. I think the challenge there is that the initiative at the moment is focused purely on DOTs um, and not onto the cities and counties. And actually, pretty much all journeys take part on all types of road. So that's kind of where we see ourselves wanting to come in and try and look at ways of standardizing, pulling data together, but also pushing it out to different um, you know, GPS providers, you know, regardless of whether they're a DOT or a small city or a, a county, so that we've got coverage across all of the roads um, and can push that out in a common common format. I think actually that's more important than it is to work with the DOT, at least initially, because like you say, there are more people that will be inconvenienced coming out of their neighborhoods, driving around to the grocery store, driving around to their business. And there's a lot of people that won't ever drive on the highways. They'll drive just on surface streets, side streets to get to where they want to get and, and not never hit a highway. Now, and, and this is one of the, the challenges that we recognize when we first looked at the US as a marketplace for us. And well, oh, the 511 exists. Why do we need to be here? But actually, you look at 511 and it tells you about one piece of a journey. It's the interstate. It doesn't then tell you what's going to happen when you come off the interstate and go into the city center. And, and that is such a, you know, a, a limited view of the world. And it's something that we've always, from the beginning, aim to solve is to, to worry about all of the roads, whether they're a, a major interstate or a small local road, is to ensure that you have that holistic view. And it's something we're, we're very hopeful to get involved um, you know, locally uh, w- within Denver work. You know, at the moment, we're in having some early stage discussions with the Denver South Traffic Management Association, which is trying to hook up all of the local cities and counties, but also Colorado DOT themselves, which for us, is that exact whole window of all of the different roads, whether they're local or interstate, and trying to pull together all of that information and then see what value we can unlock in in hooking that all up together. Recently, I've been talking about how cities, most cities around the United States, even big cities like there in London, they're really limiting how many vehicles can come into the city. There's a congestion tax in some cities. London is famous for charging people to get into the city. Can this information then be presented to non-drivers if it's getting harder to get into these cities, if you're going to have more people walking or biking or being on uh, scooters? Can this information go to those folks who aren't even in a car? Yeah, one of, one of the the things that's actually happened since um, our lockdown ended in uh, April or May earlier in the year is uh, an active travel initiative where a lot of the local authorities have been reconfiguring their uh, town centres, um, introducing things like pop-up bike lanes and um, widening sidewalks, etc., And a lot of that information is also captured, or all of that information is captured through our platform in the UK. Uh, In fact, we have a unique uh, map of uh, uh, response strategies solely for COVID-19, which is kind of interesting in its own right. Um, But a a lot of those are relevant primarily to to cyclists and to pedestrians. Um, So, yeah, we see no difference really between 
changes to the road network and disruptions on the road network, irrespective of whether they're relevant to drivers or whether they're relevant to local residents, et cetera. Uh, one, of, one of the big use cases for our platform before COVID was uh, tracking uh, rolling road closures through marathons and uh, bike races, et cetera. And that information was used as much by local residents who wanted to know when the road closures would lift so that they could get across the street to use the local shop or whatever, as it was by uh, people visiting uh, by car or whatever. Oh, interesting. That's James Harris. He's the CEO of One Dot Network. And I'm also speaking to Simon Top, the chief commercial officer at One Dot Network, about their traffic operation software. You just mentioned a moment ago the lockdown. How has traffic shifted and changed as you've seen it there in UK, around London, uh, from before COVID to the lockdown now since COVID? It's fascinating. Obviously, there was a massive drop in in traffic uh, during lockdown. Um, What we've seen is traffic levels returning broadly to pre-COVID levels, but the distribution of traffic's been very different. And we've we've also been looking at this across different cities in the United States. And in some areas, there's still a morning peak, but there's no obvious evening peak. There's just uh, high volumes of traffic throughout the afternoon. Working patterns have changed potentially irrevocably um, is what we're we, what we're seeing. Um, the other thing that is really relevant to the problems that we solve um, in the UK is the volume of uh, roadwork activity, which dropped off massively during lockdown. And since lockdown, we've seen uh, utility companies really ramping up their works programs and a, um, you know, the, the, the major projects that fell away during COVID have generally come back. I know that there's uh, not a particularly consistent picture across the United States. There are some states that have really uh, seen a, a, a drop in roadwork activity because of the gas tax, the, the drop in gas tax. There are other states that are hugely ramping up. But overall, the picture seems to be that traffic, um, because of the lack of transit usage in cities, because of the increase in single ridership, because of social distancing, et cetera, Roads have never been more important or more contested. You know, everyone's trying to get at roads, whether they're digging them up, whether they're using them, um, you know, so roads are where it's at and they underpin the economic recovery. So managing all this information in, in a much more consistent way seems to be very, very topical at the moment. I've seen some interesting traffic patterns as well. I've seen traffic basically come back in some areas in the morning. Actually, it's come back higher in some places in the afternoon. Other places, uh, there's still 20% less traffic, uh, depending on what I... Typically, there are some areas of Metro Denver that have... I, I hate to generalize in, in certain ways, but certain people like plumbers and electricians live in a certain part of town, and you can see that there's a lot more of them driving because you, they can't work remotely. They can't fix your light, uh, your your electric box uh, from their house. They have to come to your house, so they have to be on the road. There's a lot of service industry jobs that they have to be on the road, and they live in certain parts of town. And other parts where you have more of the traditional white-collar jobs, uh, they can work from home, and that's exactly what I'm seeing, at least on on the roadways and interesting and maybe you've seen this too there in the UK and around London but the midday traffic from 10 to 2 10 to 3 is actually higher than the pre-covid levels yep. as people are out milling around they have to they do their morning meetings and they have to go to the store or do something uh do a delivery go over and, and mail something because they usually could just drop it off right there at the mail room at their office and they don't have that option anymore yeah, no, I, I'm resident in uh, South London, and uh, yeah, yeah, I recognise 
all of that, yeah, we, we saw a huge drop off in our traffic levels initially. Then as lockdown started lifting, started seeing the morning peak come back. But yeah, you're right. With a, a huge amount of the population now working from home, people's living patterns, you know, their, their life patterns have changed completely, you know, where they're now doing their morning of work and then popping out at lunchtime to go and pick up something from the store or to go and grab a coffee. And you're seeing this weird, um, you know, the, the morning peak happens, but it then doesn't fully drop off back to nothing. It actually stays at some sort of slightly raised level. Uh, and it, that definitely is a complete change in circumstance. I think the other interesting bit from covid is just the amount of roads um you know configuration that has changed you know there, there is a need upon all of the road agencies to provide um you know social distancing space so we're seeing um you know town center high streets being closed off to vehicle traffic completely we're seeing sidewalks get expanded to ensure there's outdoor seating areas for restaurants and cafes and this is you know yeah, presented a huge challenge. Now, yeah, I, I remember going out in my first for my first time in the car in three months and hitting two or three road closures that I was not expecting, and they weren't on GPS. They weren't. Yeah, I, I had no knowledge of those at all. And it, again, it's something that we have tried to uh, step up, yeah, and enable um, the road agencies the ability to plot where those road changes have happened and send that data out to the GPS providers so that um, they. Uh, yeah, have up-to-date information and something we're working quite closely with Transport for London and a lot of the London boroughs to ensure all of those, you know, really fast-moving changes are captured and presented in the way that the public are not caught out in exactly the way I got caught out several times at the start. But Simon, like you said, you, if you're just going around your neighborhood and you, and you see some road closures that you weren't expecting because you haven't been out in a while, there are a lot of people that aren't necessarily going to fire up their GPS, their Google or their Waze if they're just going up to the grocery store or they're just going uh, a couple blocks around or around their home. They're, they're really not necessarily going to find out that information because they're not using that software that they typically would if they were plotting it out from home to their office that might be 25 minutes away. So how do you account to get those folks to get information when they don't necessarily use their GPS all the time? Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting challenge. And, you know, I, I think, you know, certainly GPS use is high. You know, I find, we find even uh, where journeys are known, you know, the local journeys, people are reliant on them purely from a traffic congestion and time, you know, journey time reliability aspect. But I think the other, the other aspect is, you know, providing the road agents is a communication channel. And that's something we've always served, you know, before GPS was really a big thing, you know, you know, if you go way back to the beginning of you know, this this type of work happening, you know, the, the communication method was placing an advert in a local newspaper was the primary method. Then we started seeing road agencies publish lists of roads on their, their council website. Yeah, we, we then have come along with the map-based provision of plotting that data and see lots of the road agencies now embed our map within their website. So again, we're, we're trying to provide a whole range of those tools to people to, to facilitate uh, and provide a communication mechanism. Again, our, our website is publicly available. So whilst it is an operational tool, we get somewhere towards 30 million visits each year uh, in the UK you know, from members of the public visiting our website, either directly or through our customers' uh, websites where our map is embedded. Uh, and it becomes an important communication channel. And we, we've put simple elements in there where you can, as a member of the public, draw a box on the map and then receive an email alert from us anytime there is you know, a new piece of roadworks, uh, you know, a work zone 
plan somewhere in the future. So you can't capture absolutely everything through GPS, but there are a number of vehicles of communication that we, we provide and try and give road agencies you know, as many different channels as possible to communicate with their traveling public. Um, yeah, yes, you won't capture everybody that way. Some people are just allergic to technology. But uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to provide as many different channels as possible. Text alerts, I think, work better in that kind of a situation than than maybe an email because I would have to see the email come in on my phone and then be checking it while I'm driving. But if a text alert pops up and then it draws my attention, I can quickly see, especially if I'm in that area, all of a sudden it knows that I'm two miles or a mile away from this road closure, a text alert pow pops up on my phone or on my dash. Hey, that road ahead of you is closed down. Here's a way to get around it. Push the button and it brings you to the app. Yeah, yeah we uh, see a lot of use of social media as well by our customers in, in, in the UK. So actually just by providing a holistic view of everything that the public will feel that they're in control of, even if they don't fully feel in control of, they're able at least to communicate disruption uh, through Twitter and other social media feeds as well. And that's another important channel. But it really starts with getting getting your arms around a lot of information from a lot of different parties. And that's that's been the real game changer in the UK, just providing that consistency and providing a, a consistent and centralized approach to data management. You said that drivers around London can see this on a map. Can can we in the United States get this information right now? Can I can I uh, get to your platform and see what is, what's happening here in Denver? So we're just in the process of rolling rolling this service out in, in the United States. Obviously, we need to engage with a lot of different agencies to get the richness of information that we have across the UK. You can get an idea of what this looks like by visiting one.network. That's actually the URL as well as the name of the, the, the platform. Um, and there's a link there where you can you can visit our UK map to see what it actually looks like. But we're engaging with agencies right across the United States and, and locally uh, within Denver, as, as Simon mentioned, we're having some conversations with uh, Denver South, TMA and, and the constituent uh, city authorities. And we're really hopeful to get something up and running there um, over the next few weeks and months. Is this some kind of information that maybe traffic anchors like myself would be able to use and then disseminate to uh, the folks that are watching me on television? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we stand for data transparency and what, some of our biggest users are, are, the, are, are the news anchors and uh, you know traffic, uh, traffic information services uh, across the country, for sure. So uh, finally, uh, thanks again for your time. How do you guys get paid for this? Do you then sell your service to the uh, local agencies and that's how you recoup some of the money? We sell a range of operational tools to the road agencies and also in the UK to utility companies as well to help them plan, manage, communicate um, and monitor things that disrupt traffic, basically. So we have a range of operational tools within the platform and then we provide this, this public service as part of that that service to the road agencies to publish the information and disseminate it to where it can make a difference with the GPS providers, et cetera. Well, I, I'm telling you, this has been fascinating. Um, I'm excited for your software to get going here in the United States to see what you can do with getting some partnerships with the local agencies, not just the state, obviously, but uh, the local cities and counties. And it's really uh, going to be all about information. I think information and uh, sending that out to people who can use it in real time will be, like you said, a game changer for getting people around traffic jams and, and hopefully getting them to where they want to go 
faster and safer. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're super excited. And certainly the feedback we've had from a lot of our initial conversations, both with the with the state DOTs, but also the local cities and counties has been super engaging, re- really good, interesting feedback, understanding some of the challenges they face. And yeah, we can't wait to uh, start getting a hold of everybody's data and uh, building that out and uh, seeing the uh, benefits of that get realized. Most definitely. Well, Simon Top, the Chief Commercial Officer at One.Network, and James Harris, the CEO of One.Network. I can't thank you guys enough for spending all this time, nearly an hour, with us here on the show and explaining all this. And, and, I, and I am going to follow this, uh, follow the software and follow you guys and, uh, and see where it ends up. Thanks very much indeed, Jason. Great to be on your show and really appreciate you, you giving us the opportunity to, to speak about what we do. And, and so fun to be here uh, and, and to have, make this international. We are now uh, more than international. We're worldwide. Well, you, you've got two more subscribers in the UK, that's for sure. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Thanks again, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Steph. Thank you very much. Oh, man, that was a great, great conversation. Again, the website for more information, I've included in the description of the show that link, as well as a link to a YouTube video that would uh, show you. Some people like to see videos. It's harder for them to visualize something uh, from just listening to it, but you can see it uh, on that YouTube video to show what they do as well. That link is there in the description of this show. That That was really a super fun, super great interview. And by the way... I always say this is the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast, and this is one of the reasons why, right there. I've actually received quite a few downloads from different countries lately, including the number one uh, foreign country right now on the download list is Russia. I'm not sure why Russia. Uh, I guess maybe they're active on the old internet right now for some reason. I've also received some from Germany and Australia. Australia and Spain. I've actually get regular listeners in Spain, which is interesting. There was actually one download from Peru, but I'm thinking that someone there in Peru probably just hit the button on their phone by mistake, the little download button. But hey, a download is a download, right? That <laughs> That's what I'm going to go with. If you want to check in from Peru or anywhere, anywhere around the world, really, you can send me an email at drivingyoucrazypodcast uh, uh, at uh, Gmail. Let me t- figure that one up again. Actually, it's that's also in the description if you just want to go to the description. And it's uh, you can get it there, drivingyoucrazypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or you could even leave a voicemail at 303-832-0217. That phone number also is on the uh, description of this show. I even have a WhatsApp and a Zoom available for international calls. That's how we were able to hook up with James and Simon. Uh, we did a Zoom call. We were originally going to do a uh, phone call, but obviously it costs a lot of money to call, you know, for an hour or so to call the United States. And I offered them uh, my WhatsApp number, and uh, then they said, why don't we just do a Zoom call and see if we can do that? And I said, sure, I'll figure it out. And uh, there you go. Figured it out. Put it on the old show. So that just means that there is really nowhere is too far to talk transportation. If you want to talk transportation, we can do it right here on the old world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I am Jason Luber, the traffic guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring.